I got in my hands a couple of weeks ago, the book UX and Beyond Real Life Product Design and User Experience. Mm -hmm. And the more I was going through the pages, I wanted to call the author and say, this book is not for designers. It is for people who want to nurture their creativity, anyone. That's what I wanted to do. The book talks about the skills and competencies that make individuals, teams, and organizations better at producing value, better at innovation. And it talks human. And it's definitely not the wallpaper magazine about for designers, definitely not. And today I have the opportunity to spend some time with Zoltan, the author of this book, UX and Beyond. And the reason why his book has struck a chord with my sensitivity about work culture, it is the fact that the guy has, has spent almost 17 years in the, in the industry of product development, product design, and he has seen, perceiving his experience, different type of organizations, the ones who are really small from the beginning and the ones where he has seen, in fact, this growing to being a full corporate. And what he has done in, in his book is to transform every single experience from the human perspective in product design to compile the right tips in order to become better at creativity. And again, Sultan, I have to tell you, this is not for designers. This is for anyone who wants to be good at innovation. Yeah, it's really great to hear this, Ivan, because that's what many developers ask me actually as well. It's like, okay, I saw that you wrote a book about design, but am I allowed to buy this or should I buy this? And I'm always like, you definitely should buy this because this is not just for designers. I am a designer, but as you mentioned, I work for many like multiple different type of companies, like small startups, like Fortune 500 size companies. And I just write about, about my experiences and I just write about like how to survive and uh, and thrive within different uh, like difficult situations, I would say. So definitely not just for designers. Like I guess it's even useful for those people who work in any corporate environment, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and I was thinking, uh, Zoltan, because in your book, you talk about <clears throat> this, how to engage an organization, how to engage a team, uh, how to get an organization that is dynamic. So I would say that if a, a person from human resources got that book in their hands, I think that it will trigger some of the necessity of our innovation that this department needs. So I found it quite compiling because it's almost like you are mixing like a methodology that was only for the selected ones, these people in tech about UX. You are talking about that, a job, but you have integrated everything that in a work culture is a necessity in order that our brain is optimized for creativity, right? We want to feel belonging. We want to have a good communication. We want to, to find the right timings to explore our creativity, everything was there. And that drives me, Zoltan, to, to one initial question, because we talk about innovation, and this episode today, it is about understanding how UX can help design innovation, uh, innovation in the world culture. And I was wondering, what is your personal definition about innovation at work? 
Yeah, I think, uh, thank you for asking this, Ivan. I think it's a great question. So I really strongly think that innovation is an outcome. So there are several factors we need to investigate to see if a workplace is enabling innovation, in my opinion. So there, there are different levels. There is the personal level, the team level, and the organizational level, obviously. But I always like to put the main focus on the personal level. So the main question for me is, what things need to align on the personal level for an employee to enable innovation? And I think the most important question related to that is to ask whether an like what are the incentives that are needed for an employee to be able to play their A game? Because if you as an employee can play your A game, innovation, in my opinion, will always come as an outcome. So there are a couple of factors, in my opinion, that make sense to investigate, like whether these enablers are at there and working or not. So the first thing is, how is your relationship with your manager? Because I think it is really important uh, how your how you align with your manager. Like, and, and what, there is one other thing to highlight, like regarding to this question, like what are your strengths uh, and does your company use them well? Right, there is an. Einstein quote that I really like, and it's, it is something like, you don't want to judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree. And exactly. If you, about it, if you think about it at a company, you work in a team, right? And none of us in the team are the same. So we have our strengths and we have our weaknesses. We differ from each other. And of course, there are jobs, like specific jobs at the workplace that everyone needs to be able to do at a certain level. But you want to be sure that all the things that require real craftsmanship are done by individuals or by the actual employee who fits that task the best. And this is where we get back, in my opinion, uh, to the relationship with your manager. Because a good manager will be able to define your skills and find you work that fits you, fits you the best. So I think this is really a, a cru crucial thing to mention. The other thing to mention is when we talk about innovation, at least this is my experience, is the question of how open is the organization for new ideas? Mm. Because just telling you a secret, even I think that the biggest enemy of real innovation is the fixed mindset. So basically, it's every time when you hear at a company as an employee that this is how we do things around here, right? Mm. This is fixed mindset when you hear that. And it also has to do a lot with inclusivity, in my opinion. So how open is the organization for evaluating old and maybe outdated processes? I think that's a crucial question because inherited processes can create a culture of resistance to change. I worked at several companies when this was the case and employees may be comfortable with how things are uh, with, with their approach, with their past approaches, um, even if they are like methods that are most effective. Mm. Uh, so, and, and there is one thing, as I work in software development, there is one thing that I need to mention. I call this the agile dilemma. So as designer employees, we are involved into two different types of work. We do versioning and visioning. And versioning is basically the day-to-day -day task and the the small improvements that you do as a designer day by day to make the product a little bit better. 
This is like answering like feature, like little request, updates and requests from the clients if we are talking about the B2B business. But visioning, on the other hand, is like when you come up with visioning is actually innovation. When you come up with a new feature, right? Or, mm -hmm. or, or when you just redesign your whole platform to just to make it better. And the main problem, um, this is how, this is my understanding of, of Agile. So the main problem with Agile is, uh, while both are essential, obviously, Agile environment tend to prioritize versioning and the role of visioning can be easily overlooked. That's my experience. And I have been working in an Agile uh, environment for, for more than a decade. Right. The other question we also want to ask when we talk about specifically design is, is the work you do reactive type of work or proactive type of work? Because the work you do as a designer, at least when you work in IT, can be reactive and proactive. Reactive design is when your team responds to challenges when you face them. You mm -hmm. try to solve user problems as they come. and let's say a competitor develops a new feature and you need to align with that, obviously, to, to stay in the race and you come up with that feature as well. Um, so you definitely need to do reactive and proactive first as well. Uh, but when your team is reactive, uh, you live in the present and not really focus on the future challenges, just the current ones, right? So mm. that means that in a B2B business, you mostly fix and improve existing solutions by eliminating eliminating pay points and bugs. But uh, I think it's it's really important for innovation to put a strong enough focus on the proactive design as well, right? Mm -hmm. This means like proactive, being proactive means trying to come up with features that, uh, that don't actually just uh, put out the fire around actual problems, but are more like like focusing on future opportunities. So just as an example of proactive design, a great example for that is when you come together, there is a hack week at your company. You, are, you come together with a developer and uh, you just create a solution that is something that will really benefit the users and you don't have it actually within your tool by that time, right? So this is being proactive. So, and, and again, as I said, like obviously both is needed when you develop a software or any product, but in my opinion, um, innovation is an, oh, just answering your question, if, if I would try to define like innovation at the, at the workplace, innovation is an outcome of all these things aligning well. And my defin definition of innovation at the workplace is enabling all your employees to do their best work, their A game, and use their strengths in the best way possible. So probably that's the short definition. I don't know if it answers your question or not. I love this definition. And most of your of what you have just explained focus on the, the human side of, of, of the individual as a starting point, because you have been talking about incentives. And just to frame the about incentives. You are talking about the incentives that motivates people. It's not about motivation like with salaries, the carrot and stick. You do well, you will get your bonus. You, you do bad, you will get less money or whatsoever. Mm -hmm. No, no. It's about the intrinsic motivation. What makes that a person can either become creative or wants to 
groom or nurture this creativity. You have been talking about self-awareness, knowing strengths. Sometimes it can be that the person, him, uh, the person himself has decided to work on this self-awareness and the understanding of what am I good, what do I want, what, what is a purpose also can, can, can be part of this journey, or it can be a manager that, that helps you develop this level of self-awareness. You have been talking about this sense of relationship or belonging, and then the overall infrastructure, which is the openness of the organization to innovation, to ideas, to listening. In fact, we are, what you are saying is almost like saying it doesn't matter that you have been working, studying in person in New York for creativity, because mm -hmm. if you are into the wrong environment, you are going to be as shitty as anyone coming from an engineering uh, school. So in terms of uh, uh, in terms of innovation, so it is <clears throat> the environment and the individual that can gen can only generate this level of uh, innovation in in an organization, and that drives me to my my next question because so. If we think about the role of a leader, um, probably one of the most important roles would be to encourage uh, uh, insist, um, encourage the, the team to become more creative. And mm -hmm. what is according to you this, what are the important routines, systematic routines that a leader should have with the team in order to keep them uh, this creative, Juices going around the organization, this wanting to to change uh, stuff the way things are done here. Yeah, I think it's a great question, Ivan. And uh, I just have to mention that, and this is going to be specific to what I do as a product designer. I develop software, and this is what I did within the last ten years of my career. And I have to mention that it is a bit, if I want to be honest, it is a bit hard to talk about creativity nowadays in software development, as do, as the work we do as designers is hardly even about creativity anymore, at least for those who work in software development. Because overall, like, obviously there are other areas of design, let's say if you are an illustrator or if you, if you are just a if you are a web designer over there, like, or you are a logo designer or a brand designer, creativity means a lot over there. But um, overall, I think we can say that within a software environment, um, the work of a designer nowadays is rather like a little bit like engineering work, to be honest. So in, yeah. in software development, in my opinion, being creative is more about finding the best trade-offs because there are always trade-offs all the time. Basically, this is what the work is about in software development. And if you can find a balance creatively between the different trade-offs that you need to make, uh, I guess this is cre creativity as well. But going back to your question, uh, so what are you asked what are the systematic routines? And I think um, there are a couple that I can name here. Um, so the first one is creating a safe space where people feel okay to share anything. Mm. Any type of work at any stage, I would I, I would highlight this because this is really crucial. So if I see and I see an individual contributor, so if so they should feel that they are your ally as a mm. leader. If you can create a safe space, people tend to share more often, 
And even if the feedback is tough, because sometimes the feedback that you get, you get for your work is tough, it is still okay. And they're not going to try to defend their work because they know that the feedback is valuable and you are within that safe space. So like just as, as in between friends, when you talk to a friend and you get some maybe harsh feedback, you are okay with that because the two of you have that great relation that can, can hold that tough feedback, right? So this is one thing that I would highlight. The other thing though is always challenging team members. That's, mm. that's the important rule in my opinion. Let's have feedback sections weekly and have a weekly collaboration meeting where a team can brainstorm together. The third thing is um, don't hold the steering wheel all the time. Let people you manage lead the conversation that even let, let them lead meetings as well. So giving uh, people these kind of opportunities will make you stronger as a manager and not weaker. At least this is my experience. Uh, and in my book, I also write about how to help introverted employees. Really important thing. Half or more of the employees that you're going to manage going to be introverted most probably at least this is my experience like and, and several studies highlight that being introverted may seem like a disadvantage but there are many advantages of being uh, introverted like good listening skills strong radar for uh, sensing toxicity and research shows that introverted leaders often deliver better outcomes than extroverted ones because they are more likely to get proactive employees run with their ideas and won't stand in their way. So I don't, I'm just saying it to highlight that even as a leader, it's not necessarily a problem if you are not extroverted, but introverted. Uh, absolutely. Next, yeah. And the, the next thing is providing feedback. Mm. I think you as an IC should always know how you are, how you are with your work. And promotions and layoffs should never come as a surprise for you if you have a good manager. <laughs> so, uh, and th the next thing is you need to be able to sense what an employee needs. So let's say that you are having one-on-ones weekly with uh, the people you manage. And I think I don't need to mention or highlight that you must have a one-on-one -on -one weekly with the employee you manage. I think it's quite common nowadays. Uh, so you need to be able to find out what that employee actually, what that individual employee needs. Some need just to have a conversation, small talk, talking about their private life. Some others might need professional guidance. And there, I read an article a couple of years ago about good managers. And within that article, they mentioned a percentage ratio. So the, the, rate, the, the, the ratio was about a manager does their job well, if 75% of the talk at the one-on-one -on -one with their employees made by the employee and uh, only 25% is the manager talking. And I think I, I really like that, that part because it really highlights the importance of being um, a great listener uh, in my opinion. So Jordan, I think- yeah. What I like is that while doing a great listening, you are showing to you are showing to someone else that he is he or she is important that you make him feel part of of the group it's not about listening just for the sake of venting letting the other venting out it's, it's, it's a way of showing you count for me it's like when we talk with a family you and you mentioned that friends i use family like when spending time with my mother listening to some things at a repetition or whatsoever but I'm showing her that I'm the, 
I'm there for her and vice versa. And, and that that counts for people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even like, this is some, like, in my book, I have a section where, where I, I think the title of that section is Never Work Alone. And over there, I, I just give a couple of examples on, on why you should always talk to someone about your work as well. Because sometimes we are, we as designers are, are quite biased, right? So I just, we are staring, staring screens like 24, uh, or not 24, sorry, like 12 hours a day. And we are, we have our own biases, but once you just share anything that you work on with an other individual, whether let it be your manager or another person, they can see and spot things that you are not seeing because you are already staring that screen for 12 hours by now and you lose sight of those little nuances and they can give you that and they can provide you with valuable feedback. So uh, even just to even just to back up the work that you are doing and your assumptions, it's really, really important to share all the time. That's, that's something that I, I highlight all the time. I, I'm pretty sure that you have noticed that in the question, I have used the word routines and I did it in purpose because you in one of the chapters you speak so, to something that is quite dear for me is the habit formation and why it is so important in order to create a culture. It's not like innovation should be like a one-off, this is the week that we need to change, we need to brainstorm. It needs to be like the way things are being done in this place, continuous. And creation of routines are, are super important so that it becomes natural, a reflex rather than something that is imposed or a big change. It, you see? Yeah, yeah, I, I read your book. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, one of the challenges that leaders have is that despite, hmm, um, despite that they may know the principles, the right processes, even the, the way to interact with people, then there is the reality of work, which is overstress and suddenly I don't have the capacity, the bandwidth to interact in the correct way with my people or to motivate them because I'm focused only on the job or the goal that I want to achieve business-wise. And I put aside the human side. And so I'm always like encouraging, motivating, but I'm not spending the one-on-one -on -one time with my team. So how can leaders develop this bandwidth to, in order to, to enhance this uh, human side of creativity? Yeah, so I think it is a balancing act for sure. So uh, I am a lead designer, so I can talk about my experience. My experience is that people uh, like to be involved in decision making and see uh, how you as a lead, as a professional or a lead designer uh, think and what are the things that you consider? In this way, uh, you can get an insight into how you work and, and uh, function when you make decisions. So it's really helpful for people just to involve them in decisions. And the, why I'm saying it, I think the other side of this is you can easily delegate jobs, right? So like that's something like you definitely as a reader don't want to micromanage and all of us tend to do it at some point, right? So like. Even me, like sometimes I'm really eager just to jump within the design tool and start to do designer designing, like come up with solutions. But then I need to think about like, okay, I am a lead designer, so my time is precious. And not to say like everyone's time is precious, but like sometimes I need to think about it too. Like, 
am I spending my time the best way possible, or or should I delegate? Like, what are the best tasks to deal to to, to delegate for someone, on, and, and what are the things that I should do individually? And so, what I'm saying is, it, it is always a balancing act, right? And as a lead designer, you need to take care about multiple things. So, like a balancing act, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's my experience. <laughs> I, I guess that that is the the, the the right word about this balance or or harmony. <laughs> Talking about that, you made me think about one of your uh, one of your chapters. Um, um, I think that you speak about meditation. Yeah. So yeah. these alternative practices, uh, we talk about mindfulness, meditation, can can they really work in a, to build a performing and, and creative team? Have, have you seen it live, like helping them, nudging people to do a little bit of mindfulness? Does it really help on the on the results? Yeah, yeah. A great question. So actually, I have two uh, sections within my book about meditation. And maybe a designer, when they read them, they can ask, hey, Zoli, why are you, why, why you have multiple sections within your book about meditation? But I think it's really important. And the I think this is where we get to a part when we talk about like this book is not just for designers actually, but all the individuals who, were, who live or work in this modern environment. So what we experience, experience is like modern life is filled with distraction and constant simulation from electronic devices to social media. And it's really difficult for people to, to find the mental space to, to meditate. Actually, I was struggling it for uh, for years as well. Like most people never stop thinking. And this is a huge problem. Like always do something and always think about something. This is a really perfect, uh, perfect state for our ego to take control of all, all of our behavior. And no wonder why it is down, even just for 10 minutes, close your eyes, try to listen inside and do nothing. Like our, our ego, which controls our whole life nowadays, can be terrified when something like this happens. And meditation is a personal tragedy for the overgrown ego and really a treasure for the self. So our ego provides us with a continuous self-talk. And then when we meditate, our consciousness gets, uh, gets quieter. And the inner stability and inner silence, uh, we can gain back it with daily meditation. And I tried several techniques, right? I tried Zen meditation and, and all other techniques. But the simplest method I found, and I'm a huge advocate of this technique, is transcendental meditation. Maybe you heard about transcendental meditation. So Beatles, you know, the, the rock band was who started it back then, like maybe 50 years ago. The, 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 main, the great thing about this technique is it is an effortless technique that you can learn from a certified teacher. So you need to go to a course. I think it's four days. You need to pay some amount of money. It's, it's not even that cheap, actually. It's, it's around like $600 or something. Uh, but I'm telling you, Ivan, that this was probably one of the best investments I ever did in my life. So basically, the technique you need to do is 20 minutes of meditation twice a day. Um, and I, I think I can say that doing this really changed my life and all the things around me. So, and I would like to just talk about really, again, just because I'm a huge advocate of this, like just to talk about uh, what are the upsides of this technique. So practicing this technique can help you improve, improve your sleep, blood pressure, pressure, 
and all basically all the stress stress related issues by providing a more fun and, and enjoyable life right mm. it's really it really gets you calm and it is really good good for the immune system as well and, and uh, the other things and this is why i said that this is uh, effortless is um basically for at least for me this technique works all the time uh, and what they said when i started to do it is like don't um, think about the small changes that can happen with you with a single meditation or two but just be uh, like really reckless and do this twice a day every day and never never skip it and you will see the benefits and i'm already seeing like huge benefits mm -hmm. uh, on, on multiple areas of my life so so um, yeah i think it's a really great technique and uh, i encourage like everyone just to to do any type of meditation really any time can work like I, I just had a teacher meditation teacher who just told me like sorry even when you when you drive a car like and you, the car is stopped, just stop for 20 minutes, 20 seconds, sorry, like close your eyes. And, and that's also a good way to start meditation. Yeah. I, I'm totally with you. And the, I, I think the key message is more about more than the length of the meditation or the exercise, even if it is a breathing exercise, is the consistency. As you said, you see the results when you do it recurrently, because then you can do it automatically while you when you are in the stop of the car or just some minutes before the next meeting that is stressful. We have a tendency to believe in this society of uh, hyperactivity that because we are thinking, we are really productive. But in reality, our brain, it will, as 90% of our brain is uh, the subconscious, is uh, our brain is functioning about controlling the emotions, perceptions that are not always a reality. So the fact of creating this time of for meditation or, or mindfulness, just to wake up the analytical side of our brain is something that cleans up from all our emotions so that we see reality as it is, so that we can take decisions that are not uh, biased by emotions. Emotions that can go, and you mentioned it, Ego. Oh, I, I loved it when, when you mentioned about, uh, about the ego. Uh, emotions that can be fear and that are going to, um, to intervene or influence our final, our final decisions. So I love the fact that we, for innovation, we have to be able to remove, clean up a little bit the air of emotions so that we can focus on what really brings value and what makes us really happy because we feel happiness when we have taken our own choices without the biases or of our emotions right yeah yeah definitely and again as i work as a software designer you would be surprised how many come i guess you read a ton of articles about it as well like how many techniques companies IT companies use just to hack your brain, basically, and like just to to get you stare their own solution. <laughs> like these are the things that are called like dark patterns, and they use like a ton of them just to basically hack your brain and then keep you uh, next to your device all the time. Actually, <laughs> I remember that a couple of years ago I read the book that in Google in in the company they 
they have a mindfulness training that is based on the writings of one of the software engineers and it's called Search Inside Yourself. And mm -hmm. that this has become like the training that every techie has to go through. I loved it because God knows that when you are a little bit in technology, you, you need to develop a little bit of more of, of your emotional intelligence or it, when you are in a stress a stressful environment, you need to create this time to, uh, to really be more focused on what makes you better, right? Yeah, and I really like that you mentioned that because I also have like my own uh, theory about it. Like I'm always talking about the backcountry. Like do you like whenever you are in a stressful situation, do you have a, any backcountry? So basically, what I mean by backcountry is what what are the things that you can use when you have a stressful day, like right? And we know about many not so good things that you can use, but there are a cool like uh, a couple of good ones as meditation as an example, that you can use as well. So, yeah. Zoltan, two images came to my mind. My daughters and some food. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my back country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, in many organizations, but let's say that it started, of course, with technology companies, uh, in order to become more innovative, uh, or have innovation that is focused on the pains uh, of real people, we use design thinking. Let's, um, so, and design thinking, the process hasn't changed much for 30 years or, or more, maybe Sultan, you have to correct me because I, I think that I heard that design thinking started somewhere in the early eighties, but okay, that makes a long time that it, haven't, it hasn't changed. So now with the, with the fact that you have going into the research mode for your book, UX and beyond, what would you change to this methodology? What would you add to this design thinking methodology that has been there forever? Yeah, I hope I'm not going to seem like negative uh, in any way. What I would say that uh, do not, the first advice is for everyone is do not think about designs design thinking and, and even design sprints as a holy grail, right? So I, I have a section in my book where I write about it. And basically the, that section is about you and how you shouldn't align your actual project to any standardized design process techniques or templates, right? Because that's my experience is no design process goes by the book, right? And obviously like there are, cornerstones of every design process, like the research, defining the problem, creating some sort of prototype or solution, validating it with users, doing iterations uh, um, and iteration rounds if necessary, building the actual thing, testing it and releasing the product. And like, so basically it's a cycle, like design thinking is actually a cycle, but, um, and you go and you can start all over again all the time with the iterations of the uh, solution. But my experience, I'm a little bit about against about any standardized templates, right? Because the thing that I always like to highlight is design is not a linear and heavy bath. Like most of the predefined processes are a little bit waterfall, like in my opinion, linear ones which can make you believe that designing thing is, is uh, 
as easy as, as assembly line work. Um, because in assembly line work, uh, you put the necessary items at the start uh, on the line and do the process that is defined by any template or by, by design thinking as a template, and you have a successful outcome, right? And I'm always highlighting that if design were that linear and easy and applicable, many more products would succeed. The truth is design is a messy non-linear pro process, in my opinion. Most of the time, it is a balancing act between the needs and the trade-offs. The trade-offs that I was talking about, like because, because many trade-offs being made. And I think the main thing you need to focus on when you try to solve a problem is understanding the problem you need to solve in a really deep level from the user's perspective. And there is no single way to go deep enough to understand the problem entirely. The other problem with any type of templates are like templates aren't created to fit actual project needs, like finding out the why for a specific pro problem that you want to solve with design thinking. Um, basically to get a closer understanding the how, uh, and, and this is not templates I'm not really talking about all the time. So uh, even other predefined processes like design sprints, sprints involved uh, a little bit of miracle waiting, in my opinion, to happen. Yeah. Because if you are getting five or six people in a room together for five days, that's basically a design sprint. Um, and if it would have all the problems a product can face, like making successful products would be pretty straightforward, but it's never it never is, right? I think there is an advantage, obviously, to getting five or six people in a room together, because like even just when they get together in a room and you get you are getting them to talk, and that their part, that's fine. But all the standardized and box solutions are just theatrical moves in a way that sometimes do more harm than good since they give teams the impression of innovation. But even like there is a method that we use in design, it is called the double diamond. And even that method is just a theoretical act in my opinion, because while the method is great to know and use, it is based on an ideal world that rarely happens in real life. So it's like, my opinion is like templates and even like have just to learn what uh, design thinking is overall and what are the different steps. It's really great, but just I'm telling you another secret, uh, even I think during my 17 years of designing, I was never able to fit any of these standardized solutions like design sprints or design uh, thinking into any of the of the project, like a hundred percent. There are always trade-offs. So it's just it's 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 a messy work and it's a balancing act. And obviously you need to to know what a design thinking is and what design sprints are. But I think the most important thing is rather how you're gonna communicate like with stakeholders and all the individuals who are involved in the work. And yeah, again, as I said, really great uh, technique, but in real life, I'm not sure that this is something that you can rely on 100%. At least this is my experience so far. I'm totally with you. For me also, I, I have the same impression. It's not, is maybe a set of principles to consider rather than a checkbox that we have to be fully uh, fully compliant. And, and one of the influencers is 
human psychology, I would say. And because I have seen like back in my corporate days that we thought that if we put 20, 40 people in a room for two days, we call it brainstorming, brainstorming um, we are going to generate innovation. And I and definitely is counterintuitive to how the, the brain works because we don't work well for innovation, for ideation in an, a, a stressful environment where nobody listens and on top everybody thinks that they have the best idea than, than the other. Our ego takes over. We are over discussing. We, don't, we are not listening. We are stressful. So at the end, the after two days with 40 people that are, were highly paid, uh, we have uh, bullshit. Nice <laughs> presentation, but bullshit. Uh, <laughs> I guess, Zoltan, that, and I have seen it in, in several parts of your book, the, the, the human brain plays a big role in why programs, products, services that we want to be innovative fail at the end. So, and, and we, we name it like a little bit like the ego, a, a, a little bit of uh, the, uh, the, the inability to understand, to understand what is the real problem. And when the solution of course comes from us uh, and we all believe that we are divas, we of course, we, we believe that that's the best idea ever. So what are, and I'm pretty sure that there is more into this psychology world that influences why product services fail. Yeah, sorry, I lost you for a second. Maybe my internet is a little bit unstable, but I need to let me jump on my personal just a second. Because you know uh, what, Sultan? Probably yeah. it's my internet that is uh, is doing the game because it's, it's not the first time <laughs> that he's doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's continue. Hopefully, it's going to be okay from now. On. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was telling you about these psychological elements that influences the outcomes of any product service, and sometimes it fails. According to you, what have you observed as psychological or brain tricks that makes that we have we cannot have a good innovative product or service? Yeah. So actually, I write about it in my book as well. There is a story titled 10 Reasons Why Products Fail and How Yours Can Succeed. And there are, there are many things uh, to mention here. So I think the reason number one is not solving the right problem or any problem. And I see it at many startup products, actually. So I just watched an episode of, of the Hungarian version of Shark Tank. Um, <laughs> the startup founder invented a room cleaning shower made of paper. Uh, and the main innovation in its message was uh, that you can throw away the shower after a certain amount of usage. And it will not stink like a regular one, like a plastic one, right? And I was like, man, just wash the plastic shower occasionally and the problem is solved. So you, don't, <laughs> you don't need to found a startup for that, right? So what I'm experiencing is many startups discover a, a non-existing problem they want to solve with their big ideas and it should happen the other way around, right? It seems that many times they, they like startup founders and again, this is just some of them, not all of them. I need to highlight that. But many times um, they like... Uh, 
even the product doesn't really matter for them as long as the company is a startup and the idea is good enough to hunt down investors with pitch mm -hmm. presence. And so this is one thing, not solving the right problem or any problem. The second one is no product vision or no strategy. Uh, the third thing that I would add here is failing to understand customer needs. And this is where we are getting to the to, to, have, to having a proper research, a customer research. Um, the reason number four is the mental model versus system model when there is a too wide gap between the two. So basically the mental model, model is the user's understanding of how a product work or how a product should work. And the system model is how it actually works. And some products require like substantial consumer education um, mm. that's too new or too different. So therefore the usage is not really habitual. And the problem is if we fail to provide design patterns uh, to the product for users that we will find familiar, it will take them really hard to understand how the product actually works. So it might happen that you they just don't understand it, right? Like there is a rule, Jacob's law, that states that individuals prefer to use products that function similarly to those, uh, to, to, to those ones that, that are um, familiar with them or that they already mm. use, right? The other thing that I can think about is poor timing. Um, or or as, a, as a graphic designer, I, I used to do many branding uh, and not having a proper branding or no significant branding is also something that that is uh, not good and that can uh, break your product actually, because good branding is the one that sets you apart from the competition and involves a strategy that makes your product really recognizable, right? So strong branding really generate real value for any product. Uh, some other things are like probably launching too early, launching a product that is not well tested and does not meet users' expectations, even if the product is ready, uh, I think it's bad and sometimes this is my experience. Like I was working on a mobile mobile app, and this is what happened over there. Sometimes you only have one chance, one shot, and if if it's not a good experience for users, you will never be able to come back, even if you come up with updates and iterations, mm -hmm. because you get bad reviews, and bad reviews are the next thing that can really um, kill your product. If you think about the mobile app, I think the first thing that you consider when you want to do download. A mobile app is like, is to see like how are the ratings, right? What is the feedback? Does it even make sense for me to use that internet bandwidth to download the app? Actually, um, yeah. So yeah, and and this is where we get to, like I'm picking up exercise again. So I was like I was trying to find the back best app for myself to do workouts and like. Many of them are like super, these workout apps are like super expensive. And I really like, you can have a seven day trial period, but you can cancel before they start to charge you, right? And my experience and experience with these apps was they were really not providing enough value for the money for me. So this is also something you want to provide value for, for the, the customer's money. Money, whether if whether if they pay, whether if it's a free service, because if it is a free service, they pay with their data, or whether you charge them, then they need to pay money uh, for your 
your app or your service. Sometimes, but what I find is is it's quite a dilemma, and uh, for many founders, tech founders especially, it is quite a dilemma to go out and give it a shot with uh, a not so nice app, but that is solving maybe the right pain for the user. So the user will will say, okay, maybe still has some bugs, but I will swallow it because it's mm. so it's making my life easier for this and waiting for perfection, of course. There, there is pros and cons, but there is no, it's so difficult to balance this timing of saying this would be enough because with that, at least I get some learnings that can, will, can help me to do better uh, the app. Or you can decide also to pivot and say, okay, I have learned. And one of the things is that nobody needs my app or nobody would pay for my app. Uh, and I can do something else, but I have learned something. And there yeah. is a different elements of re re reusability in any idea, even if we have a big, the biggest fail ever. And so, but it's yeah. still difficult to decide, man. I think it's really, really I'm really happy, uh, Ivan, that we are talking about product strategy now because I really like to talk about product strategy. And you are definitely right. So, whenever like you are working on a complex problem, just develop a software. I think the first thing you want to do is just think about the MVP, right? What is the MVP that you want to bring out to customers? Mm -hmm. um, and but so I'm not I'm really not saying that you should like spend like just uh, in a cave spend like one year develop a software and then just throw it out as a Trojan horse for users that it's gonna be full of, of bugs. This is definitely the waterfall model. What I'm saying is like even before you come up with an MVP, you should make a proper testing with actual users because I'm sure you already seen that there is a graph. Uh, and the graph is basically just highlighting the two axis graph and it's highlight like the cost that you're going to pay uh, for for the updates or, or picking up all the bugs and fixing them. And the, the other graph is a timeline and it shows like how early you pick that actual problem. And when you are, so the, gra the graph is basically about if you pick that actual problem right at the start, even before you launch the problem, let's say it's going to cost you a hundred bucks, right? But if the tool is already out there and users are using it, it's going to cost you like 10,000 bucks, right? So within time, the actual value that you're going to need to spend to fix that, fix that problem is just going to grow. Just as an example to highlight that is, I guess you can also recruit situations when they call back different vehicles because th there is a problem. Like, th let's say that they call back like a thousand Teslas because they saw that there is a problem there, right? With the with anything, with the lights or with anything. And the, if they would do proper testing and they would be able to pick that right at the start, it would be much cheaper actually just to fix the, fix the problem. And this is, I think, where it's crucial to highlight um, that you need to do proper research and testing before, even before you launch your MVP, right? And uh, yeah, and but you are definitely right. I think there is always a chance to do some improvements. This is what product development is all about. So I remember, I can recall a time when I was out in uh, um, 
uh, Silicon Valley with my wife, uh, Priscilla. She was not my wife back then. Like, we just worked together at her company. And that, like I was really hung hungry. We were at the NASA Ames Park and I was really hungry. And there was a, I think it was a peanut butter bar over there. And I tasted it and I was like, hey, Priscilla, you really need to try this product. It is really outstanding, really great taste. And she was like, what? I tasted the same peanut butter bar like one year ago, right? And it was uneditable. So you were not able to eat it. It was that bad. And this really shows that like, and that's funny. And it's this is somehow connected to like, uh, losing chances if you come up with a with a wrong version uh, as an MVP. So they came up with a chocolate bar. Again, I don't want to name the brand, but they came up with a chocolate bar, released it. People were not able to eat it. It was that disgusting and really bad taste. But then a year ago, like sorry, then after a year, it was really delicious. So what they did was like probably based on the feedback they did, the improvements and it become a really good product. But the problem is maybe you tried it a year ago and you were like, okay, it was so bad, you don't want to try it again. So the main question here is like, will your product get a second chance? And I think it's really important. It's an important question, right? I, I want to open a parenthesis because I re suddenly I realized that we went to the rabbit hole of something that I'm passionate about, the innovation, and we, we, we are talking about tech, startups, and so on. But listen, there is people who are working in the corporation an HR person as a finance manager. And the key message, if we are translating all this beautiful design thinking or launching or not an idea is that in many cases, organizations, because they don't have the right structure of feedback or working together or empathizing really with the problems of, of either their people or their customers, that when I say their people, these their employees or their customers, they are not focus on finding or improving or innovating uh, at work in the most efficient way. Uh, one example can be that uh, an HR manager who decided to, to invest maybe $300,000 in, in an Oracle module for having analytics about, about HR people. That's a waste. Go and do your this story that we said MVP minimum viable product. You can call it prototype or a sketch or draft or shitty version. It is sometimes an Excel file. It is sometimes just some piece of paper based on the discussions of what is the most painful problem for your target audience, employee or final uh, final customer. Certain problems can be solved by a budget of one hundred dollars rather than spending your three hundred thousand with Oracle HR or SAP HR, both, I don't like them. And yes, it could be done better by launching quickly a solution that, that can be validated with a small number of people to see if you're solving the right problem. And on top, you get these people onboarded already. You get to create fans, these early adopters who, who, are, who their pain is finally relieved they become the people who are going to be talking. Oh, I use this. You also get an early buy-in, right? You also get an early buy-in, buy which is really important. And you are definitely right. So like, obviously like showing your solution as often and as easy and as early, I think it's really important and vital, right? Because you get feedback and you can iterate the, the, the stuff. 
And there is always one thing that I write about in my book is like, if you don't like, I think whenever you try to find a solution for any problem, you should like right now at like at the company that, that I work for right now, I, I'm working on a really super complex problem. And when you work on a super complex problem, you need to find an approach, right? Like what is the approach? How are you going to solve that problem? And my approach, so the best approach that worked for me so far was let's look for quick wins, right? Because looking for quick wins is a mindset, really. Like maybe you think that you need to have this really dead star size uh, solution to solve the problem, but maybe you can come up with a little tiny solution that's gonna eliminate like 90% of the pain points of your of the person we design for, right? So yeah. I think this is a and this is really an approach that you need to focus on because you can easily lose sight of that method of like, okay, always ask yourself what are the quick wins you can have, right? The other thing that I also write about, and I think this is something you highlighted, Ivan, is how important is it to visualize things? Obviously, I'm a designer, so I like to visualize things. But there is a chapter in my book where I write about, I think the title is like, if a problem seems overly complex that you want to solve, try to visualize it as early stage as you can. Because if you cannot visualize it, it probably means that you don't fully understand it, but at least you will get the wise of like, okay, I can't, maybe I can't draw a chart based on like, what are the things that I'm not understanding? Mm -hmm. And it will be a great uh, thing for you to think about the next steps, right? Why can't I visualize that small problem? Because if, if that huge problem, sorry, if you can't visualize a problem, you are not fully understanding it. That's, that's my. Mm. And, and I like that this visualization more than the fact that just writing a problem statement because a problem statement is just activating part of your brain. Innovation yeah. or creativity or curiosity is enhanced by different connections of your brain. And suddenly when we are saying visualization, that is another side of your brain that becomes active and you can really leverage on all this network of neurons doing the work for you instead of just having one side of your brain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Zoltan, so I, my gut feeling tells me that Writing a book is not easy. It takes super long time. And I, I'm guessing that UX and beyond, it was it was a baby that came to birth that with, with pain, with a little bit of obsession, I guess, because you need to be obsessive about every single detail that you are discovering. Because I, a book is almost like a process of introspection about your experience, but also a little bit of self kind of self-awareness because you we don't always take the learning when we live through the, that experience um and what i wanted to understand zoltan is what what is the the reason why for you it was important to open up and and share your thoughts to the world through the through ux and and beyond yeah i think it's a great question so um I have a huge uh, pain uh, in my career, and I think all of our, like all of us designers, feel it at some point. Like, and this pain point is about. So, if you think about it, we as designers, like most of our work as digital designers, disappears so sooner than we think. 
so many solutions like visuals, logos, complex systems, and endless hours of work we put into digital solutions are vanishing entirely. No one will. So most of the, the work, and it, I know that probably it is quite eye-opening, but also sad to hear. But like 90% of the work that we do, I guess like within five or 15 years, no one will remember any of them because there is always an update that is coming. You leave the company uh, and they just overwrite your solution, even if you are an engineer or just, they just redesign and make it more, more of a perfect solution. So basically, like, obviously there are some lucky ones among us that create solutions that last for decades. Um, let's say that you are a designer who made the, the Nike logo, probably people will even remember you after 200 years, but for yet that's rarely the case. This is my experience. And um, uh, no, so as I said, none of the work I created 10, 12 years ago is still available online. And um, really at some point, once you become senior, you start to think about and care about your legacy, right? So I even told my wife that writing a book that helps only five people, and luckily there was far many people who bought the book already, even if, if like the book was just launched in November, but uh, I have much more than five, which is a great thing. But even that is a more long lasting achievement than just redesigning an entire web page of a Fortune 500 company, if you think about it, because that web page will be updated soon, but the book is gonna stay with you, right? Like, hopefully. So I think uh, the other thing is um, educating people and sharing your knowledge with the general public is an excellent way of creating something that lasts. Uh, spend time daily thinking about how you can make a long lasting impact is also important. So the critical question is like, does what you are doing make sense? Like you at some point, like maybe not that strongly when you are a junior, right? Uh, or, or, or something who just started the business, but so at some point you will try to think about like, okay, how I can leave my footprint, right? And I, there is a quote in my book that I always use that it is not enough to be great at something, you also need to look great. <laughs> and this is my own quote and uh, that uh, reminds us that we need to find our channels for sharing our knowledge, expertise and ideas. This could be like a conference presentation or just regularly publishing articles in a professional blog or writing a book as I did or starting a podcast as you did. So anything can work. Uh, you need to find the best channels that work for you the best. Because my experience so far is in this world that we are living in right now, if you don't publicly share your views, you practically don't exist. It is said to hear, but that's the situation. No one will knock on your door to ask if you are a great professional. Hmm. Uh, if, you don't have, if you don't share your views publicly, we all know the biggest names in the design industry, as an example, like thought leaders, whose word really counts. And I wonder, I always wonder how many others with excellent skills do their job quietly, right? No one knows them, expect their closest colleagues. They work daily, really hard, doing a great job, but the world doesn't know about their existence. So um, using your, exp uh, the other thing is, uh, using your expertise to further your career without even considering how it might help 
others, I think it's a bit selfish as well. Exactly. If you, if you spread your knowledge to the world, you can help others while establishing your reputation. So I think it's a win-win. Uh, and again, like who knows how many new opportunities can open up by increasing your professional value and uh, elevating your professional visibility, right? Like, so I, I would encourage everyone to gain the confidence to put yourself out there. If you are too shy to speak at a conference, you hate speaking speaking in public, that's possible, but try publishing articles or professional channels. Like even or even if this feels a bit too pushy, let's try starting a blog, right? Or there are you can always find the best way to open up for the world and share what do you think. I, and it's quite funny because there is a design book. I don't remember who, who was the author and who published it, but there is right now a book about why you should write a book. <laughs> so that's, that's funny. Like they, they wrote a book about why you as an individual, as a designer or, or any professional write a book. So I, I would encourage anyone to share. Obviously, so you need to prepare that sharing your thoughts in this way makes you a bit vulnerable, to be honest. So you you can like, luckily the all the feedback that I got was I got was really positive. But you need to prepare for the the, the bad feedback as well, and this is part of the the game too. So exactly, and I liked that that you have done it, Zoltan, and and. I also like the, the the reason why this story about having impact. So we can call it behind legacy, legacy, but it is having impact is about influencing positively about a topic that hasn't always been taught or talked about, and, and it is about the human side of of, of this of creativity or the human side of of, of UX. Uh, this is a topic that I have rarely heard of, and that, uh, and that's why at, at the beginning of this discussion we we say that this is for everybody who wants to become more innovative at work. Is mm -hmm. it any? And, and I'm sure that the practice of the advices, recommendation, and research that you have put into your book are going to help a lot of people to create to to be more confident to to create this a. Uh, uh, momentum of, of, of creativity at, at work, regardless that you are an engineer lacking the, the confidence to, to make it happen, a guy in, in finance. So I, I, I think that the impact, it is very well structured in a way that anyone who is not from the startup world, who is not a technical person can understand it because you are only talking human language. Thank you, Zoltan, for writing this book. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate that I have the chance to talk about it at your podcast. Yeah. Zoltan, so how do we make it if people are going to want to reach you out to, to talk about the book or, or, or to talk about UX or to have some tips directly in a Zoom call? How do they reach you out, Zoltan? Well, yeah, so there is a public website of the book uh, and the URL is, I guess you will also put it in the description. Uh, will? But the URL is UX um, and beyond book.com. So that's the URL. Or even if they just type in my name, Zoltan Garami to LinkedIn, I think I'm the only Zoltan Garami on India. <laughs> I need to double check, but I think I'm the only one. So, like, I would encourage just people to reach out to me. And there is something that I would like to highlight. So, and this is something there is a landing page of my book 
where you can buy the book. And I, I just, I, I really want to mention it, that I just added some extra line to, to that place. And that line highlights that if you are a young professional who can't afford to buy the book, I just put there an email and you can message me and we can, we're going to be able to find out something because I know that like, this is something at least for me in Hungary that it was, even the delivery was like three or four weeks and it was a little bit quite expensive. Like I really want to talk, I, I really don't want to talk bad about Amazon and their pricing strategy, but actually you would be surprised to hear like what is the amount that an author gets when they sell a hardcover. I, I don't want to get into details about that, but yeah, even, and that's something that I also did maybe like it is only in, in Hungary, but I donated two copies to the public library of Budapest. So for students who are not able to afford the book, they were going to be able to rent it there and they're going to be able to read it. Because for me, the most important thing was like just re reaching an audience, like as wide audience that I can. And not really so like, obviously, if you think about it, like if I would sp have spent like that one year with other like doing design job, like financially it would be much beneficial. But as I mentioned, because of le legacy reasons and other stuff, this book was really important for me to write. I love that. I, I mean, it is the kind of job that is rewarding. And when you think about your family, what they're going to be, how they're going to be perceiving, talking about you and knowing that there is a person who cares about the rest of society to bring up the, the good or, or, or to even leverage on, on, on the job to, to say, I want to teach others how to make it better and how to feel better doing that job. It is amazing, Sultan. Definitely. Thank you very much for your time. And I, and I don't, and I don't want to seem a hypocrite. So to be honest, like, Obviously, I knew that when I'm going to write a book, it's going to open some doors for me as well, like on a professional level. I need to highlight that as well. So, uh, and actually, I'm seeing that happening already, which is also great. <laughs> That's good. That's how you get to get to know all post podcaster hosts like me. Yeah, 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 <laughs> definitely, definitely. Sultan, it was lovely to have you today. Thank you very much for making the time. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.